Welcome to the Nano Entrepreneurship Network podcast, where entrepreneurs who have transitioned ideas into the marketplace share their insights and some of the lessons learned navigating the technology development pathway. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Marco Longo, Professor and Department Head of Material Science and Engineering at Drexel University. In addition to her academic work, Michelle has co-founded three biomedical technology startup companies. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and the companies that you've started? Sure, thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm a professor and department head in materials at Drexel University, but before becoming a professor, I worked for about seven years in industry at General Electric and also DePuy DuPont Orthopedics. So this background with a dual role in industry and academics, especially in making and manufacturing medical devices, has really allowed me to marry two parts of my background with startups to try to make new ventures when there's a compelling need and where we can make a unique contribution with our technology. Can you share some of the challenges and perhaps some of the opportunities that you saw when you were trying to spin out companies from your academic lab? Yes, I think anyone you speak with who tried that spinning out of the academic lab have many stories to tell. But I think one major challenge and and really one of the earliest steps is deciding on the business model that you'd like to use and finding the right people to work with. So for me, I always wanted to keep my job as a professor. And so I wanted to have the startup, but not leave academics to go and do the startup. So for that, I needed to find partners who I could work with that would be more full-time in the venture so I could sort of keep one foot in the academic line and one foot in the venture. So I think deciding on the model that works for you as an academic is probably the first step and, and most important one to work out initially. So I understand that you've had what might be considered two successful startups and one perhaps not so much. could you talk a little bit about what types of companies these were and what you learned from those experiences? Yes. The first company was was one that was spun out of a, a National Science Foundation grant that we had. And it was a hydrogel, which is a polymer that you could inject into the intervertebral disc to stop lower back pain. So there, my academic colleague and I partnered with a brilliant CEO, business person, and a surgeon. And together we had a management team that was able to really secure funding, to drive the technology along, to make it commercially viable. And we had a lot of fun and success in developing that with some good clinical outcomes that led to a sale of that company to a major medical device company. So that was really fun. And then we continued to do research with that group for many years afterwards. So a lot of students were trained there. A lot of our students went to work at that bigger company. And it was a really fun venture and and a success as far as that goes. The next one we had was trying to spin a technology out of the university, but it was a little bit um, maybe early, early on when we tried to do that. We didn't really have quite enough research under our belt at that time and switched from the area that we were investigating, the application of medicine that we were investigating to a different area. And all of those things in combination really prohibited that from becoming successful 
with a variety of, of, of other things, multifactorial things. So that one, while it was a great technology, it, it may not have been the right time. It really had to go back to the drawing board a little bit. And so we're regrouping that at this time and seeing if we can take that in a different direction, which is looking very good. But that was a, a challenge and always hard to make that decision to, to stop as well. It's harder to make the decision to stop it than, than to start it. That's what I found. And then the third one, when we just finished last year, was a technology that I worked with with a brilliant partner, actually a childhood friend of mine who was a leader in the behavioral health industry. And we got together to do a product that is a rounding compliance check for healthcare workers to check on behavioral health patients in the hospital. And that one was a, a lot different than my academic research, but it was a really important need for a very vulnerable population of people. And we were able to take that technology and bring that into hospital care, sold it to many hospitals, and then sold the business to a larger group that made a major investment and, and is taking that further. So definitely the timing has to be right. The people that you're working with have to be right. And, and the market has to be there. I understand a, a more recent project has been using your skills in entrepreneurship to help people on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, this is what I consider a little bit more in reflection after the last few months, more of a social entrepreneurship type of, of endeavor, although it was never a, a formal company, incorporated company. But I got a call from a friend of mine who runs an emergency department at Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia, Betsy Dantner. And she asked if we could help her we could make face shields for her because in her practice at Einstein, they weren't unable to secure face shields. So within six days from that request, we were making face shields using 3D printing and <laughs> pulling pieces together uh, that we needed to, to make the face shields. And, and my partner, Amy Throckmorton and also Alan Boss put all those together and then we were able to check those through uh, different physician groups in the, in the city of Philadelphia where we live and get feedback from them and start making them. And so we've been making a lot of face shields and we've had a crowdsourcing 3D printing from across the city and across the campus at Drexel University. We've been financing that with generous donations, corporate donations, individual donations, and donations of time and resources. And now we've made about over 14,000 face shields. We've delivered them to hospitals, to nursing homes, police forces, to home health cares all around the region. And uh, we're still continuing to make them because we still keep getting the demands and needs for them. So without, I think the entrepreneurship background, when I got that call, I'm not sure if I would know the steps to take to you know, get a manufacturing process off the ground and running in a, in a university setting in a very short order. Well, that's really a, a fantastic story. And I imagine that the students that have engaged with you have learned a lot and also have been able to play a role in dealing with this crisis that will be a great life lesson. Yeah, the students really enjoyed when well, we needed them. And, and I think they've enjoyed the interaction and being able to do something constructive using their skills to contribute to this really significant cause. 
I want to switch gears a little bit and talk maybe about some strategies and advice. You hold a number of patents. Can you tell us a little bit about your patent strategy that you've used for the companies that you described earlier? Yeah. As an academic, one thing that we continue to do is to publish. That's always very important for our mission. And so we continue to publish, but first, before we publish, we will protect the intellectual property. And as long as we can do that, we can keep our publications going and stay true to that academic mission, but also protect the IP so that that has a chance to go forward with commercialization. So once we have a core patent that covers the main part of the technology, then we try to write sort of subsequent patents to to ring around it and secure it and protect it even further. It's kind of like a fortress. We have the, the main fortress and then we have an outer wall of other patents that extend and secure that a little bit further so that we can maintain a freedom to operate and also have our own uh, intellectual property uh, to practice. In the Philadelphia area, you have a strong entrepreneurial ecosystem. And one of the players in that ecosystem is the Ben Franklin organization. Have you been engaged with Ben Franklin? Yes, yes. I've been very much engaged with them. They are a fantastic organization for startups, including academic startups, and are really the lifeblood of seed funding in the Philadelphia region. So my first company had some funding from them, but my third company was very heavily funded from them. and They just gave us a tremendous jumping off point. So Michelle, the examples of the companies that you, that you mentioned are biomedical technologies. Have you had any experience interacting with FDA? And, and if so, do you have any suggestions for folks that are looking at biomedical technologies? Yes, I've gotten some products through the FDA. And I think the, the key to that is to really know your product that you have, develop a series of testing that you can propose to the FDA if it's new and there's no pre-laid groundwork on that, or if it's similar to something already out there, there's a lot of literature you can draw from uh, from the FDA. But to put together a plan of testing and then have a rather early conversation with them, they're very open to discussing, have some plans before you get too far along, and then connect with them every so often so that you're not doing a ton of work guessing what they want to see and then giving it to them and then having a different question for you. So I think communication is key when dealing with FDA, and that seems to to be part of what makes a successful progress in getting the FDA approval. Can you share perhaps a strategic decision that you made that in hindsight you might do differently? I think you learn as you go with these startups. You know, really no one is born with startup experience. So it, it really is an experiential process. I would say with our first company, we had an offer for the acquisition of that company within 18 months of starting it, which was, I didn't really realize at the time, but rather unprecedented. Usually an academic startup takes about eight to 10 years to get to a, a, a transition like that. So it was kind of interesting, which was great. And we did a lot of thinking about should we sell it or continue going? And we made the decision to sell it with certain conditions in place that were milestones based on, on how things would go. But what we found was that once we sold the company, we had 
not as much control. Well, we didn't really have any control anymore, but we still had responsibility to meet milestones. And I think probably I would have restru- I would have structured it differently. Because that led to a lot of a little bit of conflict and frustration as as the group was trying to move forward with sort of responsibilities, but without control. So, so that. Transition to a, to a sale is also part of having a startup when, if you know, it's successful when that happens, generally speaking, but it also has its own challenges and culture challenges. You really want to see things still be successful and move on, but they're a little bit out of your control at that time. So I did learn, I structured the third deal, the deal of the third startup differently than that first one. So that was something that I learned along the way. Throughout your entrepreneurial experience, can you recall advice that you received from someone that has really continued to resonate with you? What's the best advice you've been given as you've gone down these pathways? Well, I think the advice and the piece of knowledge that people told me is that it's, when you have a startup venture, it's going to take a lot more time than you think it will take. I can attest to that. It does take a, a ton of time. And that time is a lost time of opportunity for other things. So depending on what your goals are and your strategies, I think you have to recognize that. You can't do 48 hours worth of work in 24 hours, even if you try really hard. So so it's uh, something that, that you have to recognize and be ready to engage in and to dive into. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today, and I appreciate you sharing some of the stories from your experience Do you have any advice that you would give to young entrepreneurs that are just getting started or are thinking about getting started in this area? Yes, I'd say it's such a worthwhile endeavor to make something from nothing. And especially as an academic, to see something that you've discovered in a laboratory translate to commercial use or use by patients. It's by far for me the most rewarding thing that I've done professionally. And so I would say to go into it, you know, don't be afraid of it, to give it a try. But one thing that we do as academics is trying to make a great paper. And sometimes the things that make a great paper or a great discovery don't lend themselves to being a great commercial product, or there may be some iteration between the discovery and the commercial product. So my advice would be before you get too far into it to really do your homework, do your, your search, product search and market research or get someone to help you with that because you really have to know if there is a, they say, is there a there there or, you know, are you working in the right direction? You can put a lot of that time into working towards something that, that may be scientifically fascinating, but not commercially viable. And so that is one of the very early questions you have to ask yourself in order to, to launch a successful business. 